turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter number 7. Matthew 7, verse number 21 is where we will be today. If you find your place, if you would stand with me as we honor God's Word, and we're going to read verse 21 down to verse number 23. Uh, These are just three short verses, and there's so much here to talk about today. Our Lord tells us in Matthew 7, verse 21, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works? And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Father, we thank you that You have given us your word. You've done so because you have loved us. We thank you for such grace. We would be lost without the light of this book. And we pray that our hearts would be open to receive the word of God today. Give our minds clarity. Give it acute sense of the importance of the scriptures. Grip us today. May your Holy Spirit work among the people. Lord, if anyone today has made a profession of faith but never possessed Christ as their Lord and Savior, that today would be the day of their salvation. We rejoice today in those who have already called out to Christ, and we praise you for that. We pray that there would be fruit even in this service, that our hearts would be attentive, and that we would give your book the honor it deserves. We ask it in Christ's name, and God's people said, Man, you may be seated today. If I were to ask you a simple question, what is of greatest importance to you? What would you say would be of the most and greatest importance in your life? What do you value above anything else? And would not the wisest response be to value that which is eternal over that which is temporary. None of us would be so foolish to say, I value my house above everything else in life. Or I value my car, or I value my clothes, or my favorite sports team. I believe the wisest and right response would be to place the highest value on that which is the most precious to us, our eternal souls. Last Sunday, Braden did a wonderful job preaching on John chapter number 4, the story of the woman at the well. And when Jesus comes to the woman at the well, he tells her, if you knew the gift of God and who it was that saith to thee, give me to drink, thou would have asked him and he would have given thee living water. After the Lord fed the crowds of 5,000 men plus women and children being 15 to 20,000 people in the crowd with five loaves and two fishes that he expanded. They were passionate about coming to Jesus for food. And the Lord sought to redirect what they valued in Luke, uh, John chapter 6, verse 27. Jesus tells them, labor not for the meat which perisheth, but for that which endureth unto everlasting life. And then those who highly valued earthly possessions, Jesus warned in Mark chapter number 8, verse 36, he says, What doth it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? And what you find over and over through the Gospels 
is Jesus redirecting what people were valuing. He was trying to show them, elevate that which is eternal and de-elevate that which is temporal. It's important to understand that you will live forever somewhere. You have been created for eternity. You are more than flesh and bone. There is an eternal spirit that is dwelling inside of you. You will never cease from existing. You will either spend eternity in the unmatched glory of God's presence in the eternal realms of heaven, or you will spend eternity away from God's presence in the matchless horrors of hell. And in light of that reality, how serious have you taken your own soul? Where you will be the moment that you die, where you will spend forever. How much have you pursued the truth of salvation through Jesus Christ? You know, the Bible tells us in Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 13, God says, ye shall seek me and find me when you search for me with all of your heart. Can it be said of you that you have sought God with all of your heart? That is why Jesus said to the woman at the well, if you knew, if you knew what I'm offering you, if you knew the value of your soul, you would labor for that which is eternal and not that which is fleeting. Now we have spent nearly a year preaching about the Sermon on the Mount from chapter 5 now to chapter number 7. When we enter into Matthew 7, verse 13 through 27, that is Jesus bringing the sermon to a climax. This is the conclusion of the sermon. We saw in verse 13 through 14 that Jesus said there is only one of two paths that you can be on. There is a broad path that leads to hell and a narrow path that leads to eternal life. There is a highly populated path and there is a lightly populated path. Both roads say they're going to heaven, but only one is actually taking you there. Last time we saw that even on the broad road, according to verse 15 through 20, that Jesus said the broad road even has its own preachers. People who speak as though they were speaking on behalf of God, but actually are speaking their own deceits. They can even preach from the Bible, talk about Jesus, even do miraculous things, but they're false. They are deceivers, and Jesus calls them wolves in sheep's clothing. If verse 15 through 20 had to do with false prophets who deceive people, then verse 21 through 23, what we read, have to do with false converts who perhaps have believed those false prophets. Many of those that we find in verse 21 through 23 would have been led into their deceptions. What Jesus says here in verse 21 through 23 is stunning. It is jolting. It is a warning. What he tells us here in these three verses is that there will be people who think they are going to heaven and will not find out until they die that they're actually going to hell. Can you consider anything that would be more horrifying than to believe the moment you die you're going to heaven but wind up in hell? But that's exactly what the Lord Jesus says will happen. And tragically, Jesus says it will happen to many. And so today I want to first look at the reality of false believers, the deception of false believers. And then I want to give you about a dozen ways to distinguish a true Christian from a false Christian, a true disciple of Christ from a false disciple. And then what the judgment of those disciples who are false will be. I don't think that there's a more important sermon that you could listen to than this. 
Not because it's my words, because it's not. These are the words of our Lord Jesus Christ that we're reading and teaching today. But this is, this is higher in value than teaching or preaching on anxiety, on worry and stress, right? I mean, where you spend forever is the issue here. More important, where you spend forever and getting that right is more important than how you're doing financially. I just talked to a dear lady before church who said just a couple weeks ago that she had actually died and the ambulance came, ended up breaking a couple of her ribs, but was able to bring her back to life. You know, eternal life is, is so precious. Your soul, friend, is so precious. And today, let your ears labor to hear what is being taught. Listen very closely because this is, this is of extreme and eternal importance. And the first thing I want to talk about that the Lord highlights is the reality of false believers. So he starts with a warning. He says in verse 21 this, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. What's extremely fascinating is the word saith is in the present tense in the Greek. It isn't somebody who made a one-time profession. It's actually somebody who repeatedly calls Jesus Lord. This is somebody whose life you would hear them talk and you would think that they're a true believer. They know the right words. They call Jesus by the right name. The word Lord here is the title given to Christ. You know, Jesus is only called Savior about 10 times in the Bible, but he's called Lord over 700 times. Lord, it comes from the Greek word kurios. It means the sovereign one, the supreme authority. He who is absolute control. The one who is your master. The Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19 and 20, for those who are true believers, it says that you have been bought with a price. You no longer belong to yourself. And it says that price is the blood of Christ and, and you are His possession and now you are to live for His glory. Because you're owned by something. Either you are a slave of sin or a slave to God. And if you're a slave of God, you're his, God's freeman, according to the Bible. But Jesus goes on to say in verse 22, he says, Many will say to me in that day, that day of judgment, that day when they stand before God. And what's so shocking is he says, this, this, this is going to be something that's common. This is not unusual. It's not a rare thing. There's going to be many people who think they're going to heaven that are not going to heaven. There's going to be a lot of people who attend a church that are not going to attend heaven. And why is this such a staggering statement from our Lord? Because many of us have heard throughout our lives the Romans road. Romans 3.23, all of sin. Romans 6.23, the wage of sin is death. Romans 5.8, the payment of sin is Christ's blood on the cross. In Romans 10, 13, whosoever shall call upon the Lord shall be saved. Now we know that anybody who calls upon the Lord, God can save them. But the Bible teaches not everyone who calls on the Lord will be saved. Jesus says many will say, Lord, Lord, and not enter heaven. And so we have to balance Romans 10, 13 with Matthew 7, 21. Many people share Romans 10, 13 with people. Very few share Romans or Matthew 7, 21 with people. They hold hands. It's like the old song that says, not everyone talking about heaven's going there. There was a 
poll taken by Barna Research that said that 74% of, 76% of Americans believe in heaven. That's somewhat shocking. Seems like so much disbelief, but 76% believe heaven's real. 64% of Americans believe they're going there. When you look across the landscape of America, would you say that 64% are those who have trusted their, their lives, trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ and surrendered their lives to Jesus Christ as Lord? I fear that many people in our country are under a false notion that they're right with God, that they're Christians, when in fact they're not. And I, I do not stand alone on this. It's been the fear and belief of the great men of God throughout church history. Men like D.L. Moody, who said, there is only about one in ten who profess Christianity who will turn around and glorify God with a loud voice. He says, nine out of ten are stillborn Christians. Dr. Criswell, who was one of America's greatest preachers in the 20th century, where Billy Graham was a member for 55 years at his church, he said that he would be surprised to see 25% of his members in heaven. And he preached the Word of God as faithfully as anyone. Billy Graham, years ago, estimated the percentage of lost people in evangelical churches, churches that preach the gospel, at 85%. He said he thought 85% of people in evangelical churches are not actually saved. Dr. Tozer put it at 90%. Jesus spoke of this reality in Matthew 13. Speaking of the church, he says, It's like a man sowing a seed that produced a good harvest, but the enemy also came and planted tares among the wheat. A tear or a darnel is something that looked just like wheat, and the only difference was the wheat had fruit on it and the darnel did not. But they look just alike. Dr. J. Vernon McGee, in commenting on this parable, said, if one out of ten responding to my invitation to receive Christ is genuine, I feel that my batting average is good. What you need to understand is, and I could go on with even more other faithful preachers, these are not silly men. These are men who preached faithfully till the day of their death for 40, 50, some 60 years long. These are men who proclaimed the word of God and they saw that it was anywhere from 75% to 90% of people in the church that were not truly saved. Is that shocking? We live in a world where the very sad reality is many who think they're Christians are not. Many in our world who profess Christ are not. And as I said, sadly, many who attend churches will not attend heaven. Just look at the thousands that responded to Jesus. Thousands, perhaps even over 10,000 that were baptized by Christ. But after three years, there were only 500 up on that mountain in Matthew 28. And 50 days later in Acts chapter 2, there was only, Acts chapter 1, there was only 120 disciples. Where did the thousands go? Where did they all go? You would have asked Jesus, Jesus, how could there be so many people who made professions, got baptized under your ministry, and you only have a few hundred people here? What happened? People have asked me that question over the years. Pastor, we've seen a lot of people saved and baptized. Shouldn't there be more people than, say, 600 people at this church by now? Where did they go? To which I respond, where did the people go that Jesus baptized? Where did the people went that followed him? You know where they went? They went out from us because they were not of us. You know what the Bible tells us in 1 John 2, 19? They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us. 
But they went out that it might be made manifest they were not all of us. One of the evidence of being truly saved is you remain, you stay. Going to church doesn't save anybody, but if you're saved, you go to church. I say this with all grace and as much kindness in my heart, but also in love and clarity, that if you're sick or unable to physically attend, I am so thankful that we have an online option. We have, we have hundreds of pe- viewers that, that, that are able to tune in, some locally, some in other states and other areas. But if you are both healthy and able, you should fear missing church because you could land in that 1 John 2.19 category. If you're still staying home because of COVID, that's problematic. I would fear God more than a virus. Haven't we gotten past that by now? So according to Christ, you can profess to know Jesus and believe you're saved and not truly be saved. Paul warned of believing in vain. In 1 Corinthians 15, 2, he says, by which ye are also saved if. You're saved if you keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless ye believed in vain. Paul said the evidence of their faith was they would keep what he preached to them. You hold to the word of God. Our Lord gives this warning in John 8, 31. He said, to the Jews which believed on him, if ye continue in my word, then you're my disciples indeed. If you continue in the word of God, that evidence is that you're a true believer. Paul challenged the carnal Christians at Corinth to examine themselves to see if they're saved. He said in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, examine yourself, whether you be in the faith, prove your own self, know ye not that yourselves how that Jesus Christ is in you, except you be reprobates. And if it was important for Jesus to warn and Paul to warn their listeners over and over again to examine yourself, make sure that you're a true believer because many will believe that they're going to heaven. Many will believe that they're safe and not actually be saved. And if that was something they warned them about 2,000 years ago, do you think it's important to make that warning today? Now let's look at verse 22 and 3 about the deception of false believers. False prophets and false believers can be incredibly persuasive, very difficult at times to distinguish. Look what he says in verse 22. I think is very shocking as well. He says, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? Call that preaching in his name. In thy name cast out devils and in thy name done many wonderful works. Henry Morris writes, there are actually prophets and miracle workers who perhaps sincerely, perhaps not, profess to be Christians, but instead are unsaved, deluded, and even enabled to do wonderful works by Satan in order to lead people to follow a false Christ. Didn't even Pharaoh's servants perform some mighty miracles? Jesus warned in Matthew 24, 24, there shall arise false Christs and false prophets and shall show great signs and wonders. Insomuch that if it were possible, they shall deceive the very elect. Miraculous things beyond human abilities. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 1 through 8, Jesus had given authority to his disciples, even including Judas Iscariot, who would have been in that verse 22 category, who preached and did miracles. 
but was never a true believer. Now notice what phrase is used three times in verse 22. Did you see it? There's a statement made three times. He says, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? And in thy name cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works. You know, false believers love using the name Jesus. The name Jesus is on their lips sometimes constantly. They had his name on their lips, but they did not have his nature in their life. One sign of a false believer is one who believes in the name of Jesus Christ, but they do not give a wholehearted devotion to him. They do not surrender their will to the king. Listen to what the Bible says in John chapter 2, verse 23. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover in the feast day, many believed, it's a it's, it's Greek word, pestuo. Many believed, many committed to him. They put their trust in him. Many believed in his name when they saw the miracles which he did. How did Jesus respond? But Jesus did not, it's the, literally the same Greek word, it's a play on words. Jesus did not pestuo. Jesus did not commit himself, or Jesus did not trust in, Jesus did not believe in them. They believed in his name, but Jesus didn't believe in their faith. They, they made a statement of faith in Jesus, and Jesus didn't believe them. He didn't commit himself to them. Shocking. In Acts chapter 16, verse 16 through 18, this is also shocking. It's just one after another. It says this, And it came to pass as he went to prayer, Paul's going to prayer, a certain damsel possessed with the spirit of divination. This is a demon-possessed girl, which brought her masters much gain by soothsaying, fortune-telling. And some things had to be coming to pass, as she was saying, because they were using her for this. Demons do not know the future, but they've been around long enough to predict the future. People say silly things. I went to a palm reader, and they rubbed my thumb, and they told me who to marry. Or they rubbed my big toe, and I found out what job I was supposed to have. Verse 17, notice, the same followed Paul and us and cried, saying, now what do you think a demon-possessed girl would say when she's following Paul? He comes to her town, she begins to walk around him. I mean, you would think that she would oppose him, she would begin to slander him, she would begin to lie about him, she would begin to do whatever she could to disrupt him by opposing him. But that's not what she does. This is what she said. This is what a demon-possessed girl says. Verse 17, these, are, these men are the servants of the Most High God, which show unto us the way of salvation. There is not a person here today, unless you have read that text, would you have expected her to say that? None of us. She literally said exactly what Paul said. Paul would have said, we're true, faithful preachers from God and we're showing you the way of salvation. She's like, yeah, they are true, faithful preachers of God and they're showing us the way of salvation. Verse 18, and this did she many days. This went on for days. But Paul, being grieved, turned and said unto the Spirit, I command thee in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out the same hour. Did you notice how orthodox she was? I mean, she was theologically correct. 
She was doctrinally sound. You know what Satan loves to do? Satan loves to get unbelievers to say exactly the same thing that true believers say. He wants their lips to mimic Christianity, but their lives to oppose it. To give Christ honor with their lips, but their heart and life is actually far from reality. This is, this is Titus 1.16. They profess that they know God, but in works they deny Him. I mean, how confusing is it when a demon-possessed girl is preaching the same message that Paul is? Satan loves that. I mean, if there is one thing he would want is to get an unbeliever to speak biblically. Get them to talk exactly like the greatest preachers. Demons preaching the gospel. That's what you have in Acts 16. Shocking. You know how many people, you ever, you ever people say, why is there so many denominations? Because there's a lot of demons that are confusing people. What do you think? There's so, well, there's so many different interpretations. Yeah, and there's only one correct interpretation. It's the Bible's definition of what it is. We don't have 50 interpretations. Well, you believe that says that, and I believe it. Well, it doesn't matter what you or I think. What does the Bible say? That's the truth. There isn't 50 ways to interpret it that's correct. There's one correct interpretation, and it's the correct one. It's the biblical one. Well, how do you understand what the Bible says? Well, it can't be discerned physically. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 2 verse 14, the Holy Spirit is the one who teaches us the Scripture's meaning. That's why some groups get it wrong all the time. They're just always wrong. They, they read it, and they, it's like they're reading it upside down. Unbelievers go online and they begin to twist the scriptures, try to mock Christianity. It's a joke. It's like, they, I mean, they, they, they don't even know what they're saying. They, they, can't even, they can't even comprehend the reality. This is the greatest book that's ever been written. There's, there's literally nothing. I've studied what Hindu teaches and Buddhism teaches. I've studied what Islam teaches. I've read some of the Quran, not all of it, but there's nothing. There, none of those books are like this. Nothing. Not even. It's, it's so ridiculously different. The Quran was written by one man, Muhammad. The Bible was written over. 1,500 years from three different continents in three different languages, 66 books by over 40 different authors, and it fits together like a hand in a glove, and it has collaboration from ancient manuscripts such as no other book has ever been written. They, they copied the Bible meticulously as no other book in human history has ever been copied. When they came to the Word of God, they would literally take, take a shower and then come back and write the name of God if they found one error on a page when they were copying the scriptures, they would burn it. They counted the number of letters on the pages. Never has there been a book written like this. And people say, oh, it's been changed down through the years. And I laugh because I'm like, you say that out of complete ignorance. And I know you say it out of ignorance because that doesn't line up with facts. Men like C.S. Lewis, who was a literary genius, yet an unbeliever, said, I was too learned in literary criticism to take the gospel as myth. I was required to believe it because I couldn't, I didn't have the, I didn't have, I wasn't afforded ignorance. When you study history, you find that this book 
what we have today is a reflection of what was originally written. This is the scripture. This is the word of God. We have 25,000 handwritten manuscripts. We can go back and collaborate that, collaborate with that, those manuscripts and see that we have what was originally written. We, we have God's word and, and people try to twist it down through the years. It's so sad. Let me give you uh, maybe a dozen or so differences that distinguish between a true and false believer. And, and, I, and I want you to think about your own life today. My desire is not to cause any true believer to doubt their salvation, but it is my desire to cause every one of us to say, am I a child of God? Am I truly saved? Do I, is my faith real? Because Jesus gives us a warning here that is significant. That many will say, Lord, and not be saved. So let me give you some of these distinguishing marks. First of all, false believers are those who will give lip service to God, and a true believer will give life service to God. False believers exchange words of righteousness for works of righteousness. They say the right things, but they do not do the right things. Notice the test that Jesus gives them in verse 21. He says, not everyone that saith, this continually calling me Lord, Lord, is going to heaven. They're not entering the kingdom of heaven. But he that doeth the will of my Father, which is in heaven. The word doeth there is, is in the present tense, which means this is how you continually live your life. It's not the person who continually says Lord to me. It's the person that continually does what the will of the Father is. And where's the will of the Father found? Is it found in a dream? In a vision? Nope. It's found in a book, right? The Word of God is the will of God revealed. Luke 6, 46, Jesus said, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? A.W. Tozer rightly said, The Bible recognizes no faith that does not lead to obedience, nor does it recognize any obedience that does not spring from faith. They, the two are at opposite sides of the same coin. If you have true faith, you will have true obedience. If you're in the military or you've served in the military, is obedience required in the military? Is it necessary? What do you think? Yes. Yes. It wasn't optional. You didn't tell your sergeant, ah, maybe I'll get to that. It's laughable because it's like you just don't do that. You know there are repercussions. And, and even in the military, you're, even if your life was the price of obedience, you were asked to pay that price. Obedience was, is of such importance, and, and we thank you today for those who have served our country in military services. But if, if we're willing to make such a sacrifice for military, which is a great thing, should we not make that same sacrifice and willing to make that sacrifice for our Lord Jesus Christ? Yet people have lowered the bar so far in their commitment to God. People can't even obey God in simple things. According to Jesus, the practice of disobedience to God evidenced someone is not a true believer. If your life is defined by not honoring and obeying the Word of God, it evidences that you don't belong to Him. D.L. Moody was once approached by a stumbling drunk on the street who slurred and said, Mr. Moody, I'm one of your converts. To which Moody replied, you must be because you're certainly not the Lord's. 
And he was one of the most gracious men you would have known. But he's right. According to Christ, the evidence and test of true salvation, the most important truth you can know that your soul is right with God is found by the fruit of your life. People with a dead faith, they always substitute words for deeds. They want you to believe there's something. But when we're, we're not what we say we are, we are what we do. Didn't Peter say, Lord, I'll never deny you. And Jesus says, just wait around and I'll watch your actions. Within 12 hours, you'll deny me three times. In John 21, Jesus said, Peter, do you love me? He says, you know I love you, Lord. He says, then feed my sheep. Three times. Titus 1.16 says, they profess that they know God, but in works they deny Him. On the other hand, true believers have action that reveals their faith. I mean, their life is different. Faith is invisible. You cannot see faith. But you can see fruit and the action of their life. And so Jesus tells us, you'll know them by their fruits in verse 20. He says in verse 16, you shall know them by their fruits. We understand that salvation is not obtained through good works. I mean, that, how, how clear is that? You're, you're and I, you're, our works do not save us. We, we, that's like a duh reality. Obviously, we can't save ourselves. And our works don't save us. And going to church doesn't save us. And reading the Bible and being baptized. Obviously, none of that saves us. But when you're saved, the root of salvation produces the fruit of salvation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things become new, right? Listen to what 1 John 2, 3 says. And hereby we do know that we know Him. How do we know that we know Him? What's it say, church? If we keep His what? So according to the Bible, how do you know that you know Him? Where's His commandments found? In the Bible, right? So look what else He says in the next verse. And he that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments, is a what? Is a liar. And the truth is, so, so if you say you're saved, but you live in disobedience to the word of God, then according to the Bible, you're a what? You're a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoso keepeth his word, in him is verily the love of God perfected. Hereby know that we are in him. He that saith he abideth in him, ought himself also so to walk, even as he walked. Living Faith produces living fruit. When you come to spring here in a couple months, don't we look forward to that? You do the same thing I do. You plant that little tree back in the fall or in the summer. And you say that tree that I bought on sale in the fall blows. It's marked down from 30 bucks to $3. There was one leaf on it, had hope, and you plant it, you watered it, you put some special miracle grow in there. You don't have faith that it's alive until what happens? <laughs> yeah, you're looking for some leaves, you're looking for something that evidences there's life. And if by June, there's nothing happening... It doesn't matter if it's the greatest botanist in the world. If they came to you and said, that tree's alive, you would say, no, it's not. Where did you get your degree from? You would say, it's dead. Well, how do you know it's dead? Are you being judgmental? 
You know, you would say, no, 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 I'm judging correctly. You know them by their fruits. If there's no pulse, if there's no heartbeat, there is no life. What does your Christianity say? Does it, does it tell the people at your work, at your school? Does it tell people on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram or whatever else you can communicate? Does it tell your neighbors? Does it tell your spouse, your children, your parents, your family? Does your faith speak to them through its works to where they would say, they would not even have to tell me they're a Christian. I can see it with their life. False believers always substitute words, works for words. They say they're something that they're not. Secondly, false believers' faith is built on the miraculous. True believers' faith is built on the message or the word. In John 2, which we read just a moment ago, it says, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, at the feast day, many believed in his name when they saw the miracles which he did. Their faith was in the miraculous. Look over with me to John chapter number 3 in your Bibles. John chapter number 3, there's a few places we'll look at in John's Gospel. It would be helpful for you to be able to turn there. John chapter 3, the story of Nicodemus. It says in John 3, 2, the same came to Jesus by night. Why did he come at night? Because can't make this public. And he said unto him, Rabbi, now this is interesting because Nicodemus was perhaps the chief teacher in Israel. And to call Jesus Rabboni, which English rabbi is, is like an elevated title. Teacher, rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God. Why? For no man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. We would say, praise God, Nicodemus is a believer. But you know what Jesus does? He always tests people who trust in something other than his word with his word. He challenges people's faulty faith with what their faith must be built upon. Isn't that what Matthew 7, 24 goes on to say? You build upon the word, you're building on a rock. So he, what's he say to Nicodemus in John 3, verse 3? Except a man be born again, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Nicodemus then begins to debate with him what that means. He doesn't comprehend it. He begins to misunderstand, misapply, not believe. Look at John 3, verse 11. Jesus says to Nicodemus, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, we speak that we do know and testify that we have seen. Look what he says to him. And you receive not our witness. If I have told you of earthly things and you believe not, how shall you believe if I tell you heavenly things? You know what Nicodemus' problem was? He believed in Jesus because of the miraculous, but he did not believe in Jesus' message. Those who are saved believe the word of God. If they say they believe but reject God's word, a person is not saved. Oh, I'm saved. I believe in Jesus Christ. I believe he died and rose again. I've accepted him as my Lord and Savior. But you know, there's a lot of stuff in the Bible I just don't believe. Oh, really? Let me ask you a question. If you were to tell me your story, I said, tell me about your life. And you spent the next 10 minutes telling me about your life. You say, what do you think about my life, my biography that I just shared with you? And I said, well, I believe a lot of it, but there's a lot of it I don't believe. How would you feel about that? Would you be like, oh, I feel so great. I feel so great. You've just called me a liar. 
And people think that they're somehow honoring God by saying, God, I believe quite a few of the things that you've said, but I don't believe all of it. I don't really trust you, God. I don't really believe that you can be trusted here. It's an incredible thing. I was at uh, a little restaurant over here where they make the Mexican bowls. Chipotle, yeah, you, you, you're saved as well. Go there to get some good food, right? And I was going through one day, it's been a while back, and um, lady had a necklace on, and I saw her necklace. I said, oh, you you one of those Christians? And she, she kind of put her hand over, she's like, uh, yeah. I was like, you really believe that Bible stuff? She's like, well, you know, I believe, I believe some of it. I was like, wow. I was like, I believe all of it. She's like, oh. I was like, you know, I said, what would you say if I, if you, we were talking today and, and I said, you know, I believe some of the things you said to me. She said, you would be calling me a liar. I said, what did you just do to God? I said, never be ashamed of that book. Look with me to John chapter 6. Jesus is feeding 15 to 20,000 people with five loaves and two fishes. Look at verse 14, John 6 verse 14. Then those men, when they had seen the miracle that Jesus did, said this. This is of a truth, that prophet, that should come into the world. But when Jesus therefore perceived that they would come and take him by force to make him a king, he departed to get into a mountain himself alone. He doesn't need men's crowns. They're like, this has to be that prophet. This is the Messiah. This is who Deuteronomy 18, Moses said, would come who would be like him, a prophet even greater than Moses. This is the Messiah we waited for. The next day, Jesus preaches. And after he preaches, literally the whole crowd left him. The entire crowd. I'm not talking he split it in half. They all left. They were, they were making a crown to put on his head the day before. After he, they, they loved him for his miracles. He preaches a message. They literally, I mean, if this is a pastor, he would have emptied the church and they'd have been like, get this pastor out of here. He's killing the church. But actually, Jesus would have said he's now defining the church. And you know what? You know what Jesus says in verse 67 at the end of this whole thing? John 6, 67. Then said Jesus unto the twelve, will ye also go away? I mean, he's got twelve guys left. Everybody's left. Are you guys going to leave too? Notice how, notice how Paul, uh, Peter responds. Then Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. We didn't come here for the miracles. We didn't come here for the bread. We came here for the message, for the word of God. You have the words of eternal life. We are sure and believe it. You know, one great difference between somebody who's a false believer and a true believer. False believers always have some kind of miraculous story, some vision, some dream, some feeling, some emotion, some tingling they don't take you to the scriptures. They take you to some experience. You know, I, I had this fluttering feeling. I had this, I started sweating profusely. I, had, I felt like a wind was coming on me. You think that's salvation? You think that experience is salvation? You think that thief on the cross is like, I had these butterflies in my stomach. 
No, he held on to the word of Christ who said, today you'll be with me in paradise. We're not looking for a vision when we have a verse. We're people of the book. When you're saved, you cling to one thing and it's God's word. You don't need any type of feeling or emotion. I had a guy one time tell me, you know, I never had, I never had an experience. People tell me you should have an experience. You don't need an experience. It's the truth that sets a person free. Look at John 8 and maybe just one other place. Some of the Jews were believing in Jesus. <laughs> what does Jesus test their faith with? Look at John 8.30. And he spake these words. As he spake these words, many believed on him. Then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on him. I mean, here it seems like they're believing the right thing. They're hearing him speak. They're believing on him as he speaks. Then said Jesus to those Jews, even believing on Jesus because of his words isn't enough yet. He said unto them that believed on him, if you continue in my word, then are you my disciples indeed. You need to understand that word disciples there just means real Christian. The word Christian is only used three times in the New Testament. The word disciples is used 269 times referring to a true believer. It's how the Bible defines a true Christian. If you continue, then you're really saved. Again, what does Jesus use to test their faith? He uses his words. So he says in verse 32, and you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. Now, do they respond in faith or in doubt? How they respond to what Jesus says. Look at verse 33. They answered him, we be Abraham's seed and were never in bondage to any man. Oh, really? Don't you remember Pharaoh? How ridiculously arrogant they are. He says, and they said, how sayest thou ye shall be made free? He gives them one verse and they already, they're already pushing against it. They become so combative against the word of God by verse 59, they pick up stones to kill Jesus. These are the same people who were believing in him back in verse 30. The same people. You know what the root problem was? Look at, look at verse 45, John 8, verse 45. Jesus says, and because I tell you the truth, ye believe me not. Which of you convinceth me of sin? And if I say the truth, why do you not believe me? Look what he says. He that is of God heareth God's word. Ye therefore hear it not because you're not of God. When you, like messages like today, if you're saved, your heart is drawn to this. I mean, you, you're, you're, you love the word of God. You love the preaching. You love the, the truth of scripture. You want verses. You want the challenge. You, you want the examination of God's word. Unbelievers are like, could they not play some more upbeat music? Don't they have some fog machines and some, some lights that could really dramatize stuff? Couldn't they lessen the teaching and preaching? Couldn't they quiet that down a little bit? Do you find it interesting Jesus never had a big music concert? Y'all with me? Nothing wrong with music. Nothing, nothing even wrong with a concert. But there is something right about lifting up the word of God, right? There is something right about doing what Jesus called us to do, right? What is your faith on? Is it on the word of God or is some experience? Thirdly, false believers will trust in a past decision. True believers trust in a present reality. You know, the Bible never says to look back to a time you got saved. Rather, it says examine yourself whether you're in the faith now. You know why it does that? Because if it was real back then, guess what? It'll be real right now. 
if you got saved back then, and there was a definite time that every person who's saved did get saved, then it will be as real now as it was real back then. Stop relying on a time you signed a card, walked forward in a service, prayed a prayer, and start examining your life where you are now. A false believer can be living in sin, living in fornication, living in adultery, living as an alcoholic, a liar, a thief, in known sin, and think that they're saved. Don't you hear the word of Christ in verse 23 when he says, Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Do you trust in your past or do you have the assurance of faith and salvation today? I know I'm not living for God and I haven't been for years and years and years, but, but I know I prayed to receive Christ. I, well, you can know everything you want to about making that decision, but if it was real then, you would be living for Jesus now. You would still be obeying Him. And we understand our obedience is not perfect, is it? But your life is being perfected. Because He who began a good work in you will perform it to the day of Jesus Christ, Philippians 1.6. It's not the perfection of your life, but it is the direction of your life. You got off one road and you are on another road. There is a change that happens. If I went to Ben and Jamie's family and friends and I said, hey, are these guys different than they were five years ago? You guys are laughing because you're like, they, it, they would be like, of course. They've changed ridiculously. They're in church. The doors are open. They're there. They read their Bibles. They're convicted about sin. They don't do the things they used to do. If I went to Carl's family and friends years ago, he's been living for the Lord many years now, but they would say, this is a different guy. He's living for Jesus. If I went to Tom's or just down the list, different person. Why? Old things pass away. All things become new. Though we're not perfect, we are being perfected. Not the perfection, but our, our life is on a different path now. I can tell you that's that, that much. Number four, they trust in feelings of assurance over the truth of God's word. They often speak, you know, I feel like I'm going to heaven. So does 64% of Americans. If feeling you're saved makes you saved, no one could be deceived. Deception would be impossible. Because believing you're saved would automatically make you saved. Does that logic make sense? If believing I'm saved makes me saved, then I can, deception is impossible. Yet Jesus said, many will say in that day, many who thought they're going, they're actually not. Just because you believe you're going to heaven doesn't mean you are going to heaven. You can have assurance, but it could be a false assurance. Instead of looking at a feeling, look at the scriptures. Examine yourself in light of the true mirror. My feelings aren't the right mirror. The word of God is the correct mirror, isn't it? Let me just read a couple passages and, and, and let you do that for a moment. Hold these verses up in light of your life. Galatians 5.19. He's about to define people that are not truly saved. He says, now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these. These are people who live this way as the pattern of their life. Doesn't mean they fell in at one time. It means it's the pattern of their life are not truly saved. And he, and he lists them. Adultery, that's having sex with somebody's spouse. It's not your spouse. You're not going to heaven. Fornication is having sex with somebody you're not married to. You're not going to heaven. Uncleanness, lasciviousness are both words that talk about sexual sin. You continue in sexual sin. Pornography is one of the root words here for one of these. Porneia, uh, you're not going to heaven. If you live that way, engaging in that stuff. Idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variances, contentions, emulations is jealousy, wrath, strife, which is selfish ambition, seditions, heresies, 
envying, murder, drunkenness. Drunkenness is not a disease, it's a sin. Revelings and such like of the which I tell you before as I've told you in time past, they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. I've told you before, Paul said, I'm telling you again, you're not going to heaven if you live that way. You just need to know that. And if you don't know that, then you're going to be in Matthew 7.22 one day. Lord, 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 I was at church, I got baptized, I, I went to class. Yeah, but you were a worker of iniquity, you weren't, you weren't even real. You knew all the right language, you just didn't live it out. You're not true. 1 Corinthians 6, 9, he says the same things. He says, know you not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived. Neither, and he jumps into sexual sins, the first thing, fornicators idolaters, adulterers. That word effeminate means homosexuality. According to the Bible, will homosexuals go to heaven? Well, according to America, they will. But is truth based on America? Are we so deluded to think that truth is now defined by America's culture? According to the Bible, if you're a homosexual, you're not going to heaven. Any more than an adulterer or fornicator will be nor abusers of themselves with mankind. That's a, that's, that's a word for sodomite. Nor thieves in the same category. If you're a thief, you steal, constantly taking things that don't belong, you're not going to heaven. Nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, extortioners, shall inherit the kingdom of God. Paul is so clear here. And notice what he says in verse 11. And such were some of you. That's how many of us used to live all of us did some of those things, and some of us did perhaps all of those things. And such were some of you, but you're washed, you're sanctified, you're justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of God. You know what? There's not a perfect person in this room. None of us are good enough on our own to ever make it to heaven. It's only by the grace of God that he reached down and saved a wretched, wicked, lying, thieving sinner like Josh and like all of us. We're only saved by the grace of God. But when that fruit of salvation, when that root of salvation comes in through Christ, he will produce. He has changed my life. Am I perfect? Of course not. Are you perfect? Of course not. But he has transformed us. You ask people before I was saved what I was like after I'm saved, it's a different person. And it isn't me boasting in me, it's me boasting in Christ. He did it all. Amen. To Him be the glory. It's all of Christ. It's all of Him. True believers put their faith in the Word of God, not some feeling, well, I feel like I'm going to heaven. You can feel that way all the way to hell. And that sounds strong. I know it does, but it's what the Bible is saying. Amen. Number five, they trust in someone telling them they're saved over the Holy Spirit affirming it. You know, someone led me to Christ and said, I never have to doubt it again. Well, don't ever do that to somebody. Because Paul says, examine yourself whether you're in the faith. My parents told me I'm saved. They, parents don't guarantee anybody salvation. The Holy Spirit does that. Romans 8, 16 says, the Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we're the children of God. I remember as a young man just crying out to God for weeks saying, God, I want to know that I'm saved, pleading with God. I never had anybody that told me it. I felt the Holy Spirit just give me a peace on my heart. It stopped me in my tracks. I could take you to the place that that happened in a, in a school. 
where I just said, God, I know I'm saved. And it was the Spirit of God letting me know that. And it was probably 10 years later that I read Romans 8, 16 and really understood that. It's the Spirit of God that lets people know that they're saved. People don't guarantee anyone's salvation. I don't care how many times your parents, your pastor, your friends, your Sunday school teacher, some deacon. Nobody guarantees your salvation. The Holy Spirit does that. Number six, they trust in religious activity over true righteous living. One thing you find among false believers is they love rituals. They love systems. They love religion. They love an activity. They love sacraments. They love taking the Eucharist. They love, they love going through some kind of a ritual. It, it, it's, it's what the Jews did. It's what Orthodox Catholics, it's what groups like that, they love doing that. You ask them, why do you do that? They don't really always know what they believe. I've talked to hundreds of group people in, in, in those groups. Well, why, why do you do that? Well, I don't know, but I just, I, I love doing that. Well, if you don't know why, then it's just a system, isn't it? And and why do they love the systems? Because it appeases a guilty conscience. We get convicted by sin and we think that we've done something to earn God's favor. We can do nothing to earn His favor. True believers don't love systems. True believers love the Savior. They know why they get baptized. They know why they take the Lord's Supper. They know why they go to church. Not for the act, but out of love for Christ. They're not trusting in religious activities. You can be lost and perform religious activities. Number seven, false believers can tell you everything they've done for God and elevate themselves. True believers will tell you all that God has done for them and elevate Christ. You ever notice that? It's like the guy I told you a couple weeks ago. I said, hey, if you, if you stood before God and he said, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say? He said, listen, I've been going to church for 34 years or 40 years. He says, and, and if that's not good enough to get to heaven, I don't know what is. So you're going you're gonna to give God your resume, right? Isn't that what they did in verse 22? Many will say in that day, Lord, didn't we preach and we cast out David? Look at all the wonderful things we did. I can tell you, I would never want to get to heaven and start boasting on me. I'd want to put Christ in front and say, it's all of grace, it's all of mercy, it's all of His goodness, it's all of Christ. We, we, are, we are like those in Psalms 116 verse 12 who say, what shall I render unto the Lord for all His benefits toward me? We're like the psalmist in 103 verse 10 who says, He hath not dealt with us after our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. We're like Paul in Philippians 3 who says, Though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if any other man thinketh he hath whereof to boast in the flesh, I more circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrew, is touching, uh, touching the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church. But then he concludes and he says, but what things were gained to me, I counted loss for Christ. Yeah, I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all those things and count them but dung that I may win Christ. He took his resume of all the religious goodness that he had ever performed and he shredded it that he might have Christ true believers shred their own righteousness false believers boast in themselves number eight false believers talk about a general belief in God true believers talk about their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ you ever notice that you stood before God oh I, I, I believe in God oh that's good James 2.13 says the demons believe in God and even tremble you can have an intellectual assent to the information, but never have a true surrendered heart to the kingship, lordship of Christ. It's, it's, not, it's not a general belief in God. It's a surrender to the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 John 2.23 says, Whosoever denieth the Son, the same hath not the Father. Number nine, false believers will accept Christ's sacrifice for them, but true believers will be willing to sacrifice for Christ. Do you ever notice 
somebody who's a false believer, oh, I'll take grace, I'll take mercy, I'll take forgiveness. But then when something happens to them, they're not going to give grace, mercy, and forgiveness. The first sign of offense against them, they're out of the church, really. So God gives you an opportunity to give grace and mercy and forgiveness to somebody else. And at the first option of that, you, 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 you send unforgiveness. You're, you're, you're not, I think God will allow everyone in this room at some point to be offended by somebody in the church here or whatever, whatever church you go to for the purpose to challenge your faith to see if you're really saved or not. He'll let somebody not shake your hand, somebody take your parking spot, somebody sit in your seat, move your Bible, do something that, you know. To me, it's always silly when somebody says, you know, I went to church and nobody shook my hand. Really, if you're shaking other people's hands, then you would have shaken hands. Does that make sense? Never be the person who says, you know, I came to church and nobody talked to me. Well, then you must not have talked to anyone else. Right? (laughs) He that has friends must show himself Friendly, stop taking Christ's cross and not giving one yourself. You'll never hear Joel Olstein preach Luke 9.23. Google that sometime, not right now. You'll never hear him say, you know, Jesus said, if any man come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. Those words aren't coming out of his mouth. There is no cross in that message. There is no cross in the best life now. The only people who have their best life now are those who go to hell. Number 10, false believers have an intellectual faith. True believers have a faith that has caused their will to be surrendered to Christ. I could talk about that for a while. Number 11, false believers have a horizontal motive. True believers have a vertical motive. False believers use religion for their benefit. True believers use, surrender their life for the glory of God. And then number 12, false believers will conform Christ to themselves where a true believer will conform themselves to Christ. False believers will have a God who begins to look like them. They'll say things like this. You know, I think God would be okay with homosexuality. I think God's okay with abortion. I think God's okay with me telling a lie here and there. If God didn't want me to fornicate with this girl, he wouldn't give me the desire. They begin to turn God into looking like themselves. They've created an idol in their heart, and they're going to end up in Matthew 5, 7, verse 22. They can talk about Jesus In his name, in his name, in his name, all day long. But they reject Luke 9, 23. They will not heed Galatians 5, 19 through 21. They will not accept 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 21, uh, 6, 9 through 11. They, they, They won't accept his word. They get offended by it. I can tell you, false believers don't hang around Lighthouse real long. You preach long enough, clear enough, loud enough, and they'll... They'll either get saved or they'll, they'll not stay. I've had people who've left and they said, hey, you know, my, lo- my you know, loved one, they left. And they said, you know what, I don't come to church to feel bad about myself. I said, hey, I can, I can fix that. If you come to church, get on your face before God and humble yourself before a holy, righteous God. Confess your sins. You'll go home feeling amazing. You surrender your life and surrender your sin to Jesus and let him sit on the throne of your heart. You'll, you'll have peace like you've never felt in your life. But if you like to sit on the throne of your heart, you won't like preaching from the Bible. It will offend you. You'll, you'll like me at first and then you'll hate me later. Like he's a nice preacher. You'll leave and say, I can't stand that guy. <laughs> and in closing, the judgment of false believers, look what he says in verse 23. 
How sad. How weighty. After they give him his, their resume, verse 23, and then will I profess unto them. You know who the judge is at that judgment? It's the Lord Jesus Christ. John 5, 22, God, Jesus says, the Father given all judgment to the Son. He's the judge. You know who the judge is at the great white throne judgment? The Lord Jesus Christ. It's before his face, heaven and earth flee away. This is the glorious Son in righteous judgment, perfect judgment. Then will I profess unto them. He didn't say, you were, I knew you and then I lost you. You were saved and you lost your salvation. No, he says, I never knew you. You were never one of mine. Though you called me by Lord, though you did all these wonderful things, he says, depart from me, you that work what? Yeah, your, your life was defined not by me, but by your sin. Your life was not defined by the word of God. It was defined by your own will. You sat on the throne of your heart. You lived the way you wanted to live. You called me, Lord, but you didn't do what I said. So what would Jesus say of you in that day? What's going to be said of you on judgment day? Does your life evidence true salvation? You know, nothing is more valuable than your eternal soul. There's not a person in this room that has their life guaranteed. No one in this room, you're guaranteed next week. There's people that were sitting in this room two weeks ago that are not sitting in here today. That are in eternity. We have been created for eternity. You're going to live somewhere forever. And as a loving pastor with all the grace in my heart, friends, you need to value your soul more than anything else. You need to value your children, your parents, your loved ones' souls. Make sure they know the gospel. Make sure they're saved. Make sure they know Jesus Christ. God says, seek me and you'll find me if you search for me with all your heart. How much have you truly longed to know him? You say, I'll never forgive that person for what they did. Then never expect to go to heaven. Never expect to be in heaven one day. Jesus said, if you don't forgive others, neither will your father forgive you. You know, one of the evidence of true salvation, you're forgiving. Because you can't produce that. But you'll forgive others. We have multiple people in this church who've had their family members murdered by people who literally forgave the murderer. I've never had to experience something like that. That's supernatural. You know what? They're still serving Jesus and they're not a slave to hate and bitterness to that person. It's incredible. It's a miracle. It's grace. If you're saved, he'll change your life. We're going to have men and women stand down front. My desire is not to have 50 people come and make some kind of verbal profession just so they can be and say they said something. My desire is that in whatever decision you make, whether today or tomorrow, whenever it is, and I pray it be today if you're not saved, that, that that faith would be real six months, a year, two years, five years, ten years. If your faith is real now, it'll be real then. Amen. Let's all stand this morning. With heads bowed and eyes closed. You know, Christ said to the church in Revelation 3, He said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If you hear my voice, open the door and I'll come in. And I believe today he's standing and knocking on the hearts of people. If you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, let this be the day that you get that settled. Maybe today, I'm sure some of you are thinking of someone in your life that you're concerned about that needs to be saved. Why don't you come and take some time and you can pray for them? Maybe you need to come and pray for that person. Maybe today after examining your life, you say, Pastor Josh, if I stood before God, I don't, I don't know of my salvation. I'm really concerned that 
that maybe I had a profession of faith but not truly possessed Christ as Savior. I know the right words, but my life doesn't evidence it. And as the Word of God was held up as a mirror today, what did the Lord tell you through His Word? Was He letting you know through His Word that you're a true Christian? Or did you sit there and just feel the press, the press of God upon your heart that you're not truly saved? If you're not, friend, I invite you to come. I'm going to pray. Why don't you come today? We have men and women that can pull you aside in a private prayer room and show you from the Word of God how you can know from God's Word how you can be saved. Father, we thank you for your Word today. It is our light. It is our truth. It is our foundation. It is our joy. And I pray today, God Almighty, that you would be gracious to these people. I love them, but I don't love them like you love them. Your love is incredible. You poured out on the cross your own blood. And I pray today if anyone is lost, that they would be saved. If anyone that is a false believer, they would come to know Christ and that you would give every true Christian today the peace of God in their heart, that they would know their, their child.